playing for us this morning, Whitley. All right, so uh, we are in the book of Philippians, and I want to remind you of a few things. I know whenever we get into a book, at times you can get lost in just the words of the book and forget where we are in the world uh, as we talk about the book of Philippians. So um, remember that Paul is under a house arrest in what city? Where is he? Rome. Uh, he, had, he had planted a church in Philippi. If you want to look at the backstory of that, you can look at Acts chapter 16. That's the backstory of what happened in Philippi. And the Philippians, they hear that Paul is in prison in Rome. And there's this guy named Epaphroditus. Everyone say Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Uh, he is in Philippi. He's from Philippi. And the Philippians, they hear Paul's in Rome in prison, so they want to send Paul a gift, also known as money, to Paul all the way in Rome. So they send this guy, Epaphroditus, to Rome. Now, this was not, whenever we hear about these things happening in the ancient world, we think, oh, yeah, so he, like, got on a little donkey and rode on down to Rome, which is, like, 15 miles away. It's not 15 miles away. It's 800 miles away. So imagine for a minute that you're going to walk from Dallas to Denver. You're going to walk it and take someone a gift, and then you're going to walk it back. All right, that's what Epaphroditus is doing here. And this would have been extremely dangerous. So he's taking some form of money to Paul and doing it either on foot or some kind of other transportation, um, 800 miles And so Epaphroditus gets to Rome, and either he got sick on the way, or he got sick when he got to Rome. And he almost died. And word gets back to the Philippians that Epaphroditus is sick, and so um, they're concerned for Paul. Now they're concerned for their friend Epaphroditus, who's also in Rome now. And then while Epaphroditus is there, Paul writes Philippians. And then he sends Philippians, the letter, back to the church in Philippi, with Epaphroditus. So that's kind of the backstory of what's happening um, in the text today. So we've been in chapter 2 the last few weeks, which is all about humility. And here's a quick, a, a quick run-through of, of chapter 2 so far. Um, it is, uh, we see Christ's example of humility in the first part of the chapter. And then last week, Tyler did a great job talking about how humility gets worked out in our lives. And then today we're looking at really two examples two case studies in humility that Paul shows us. It's Epaphroditus and this other guy named Timothy. You may have heard of him as well. Now, um, you can just picture that in chapter 2, Paul talks at the first part of chapter, he talks about Christ being the example of humility. You can imagine if someone reads that, they're like, okay, really? You're going to give Christ as our example of humility and expect us to live up to that? That's not going to happen. So Paul follows it up by saying, well, there's these two guys named Epaphroditus and Timothy who are humble examples. These are people that you can look at um, as people that, that live out humility, as, as role models on how to be humble. So whenever we read this section, I want you to just pay attention to how much care and concern and deep love that you see between all the people that are going to be described in this passage I think we rarely see this kind of thing even in the church. Have you noticed how hardened and cynical we have become? And the older you get, the more hardened and cynical you become towards other people. 
I think of whenever we go to New York City, my, my team always sees this on the mission trip, that it's just go, 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 go. And it's like you, you realize living in a place like that where everyone's just around, it, it's like the image of God gets lost because you just see people as just in the way all the time. And they're just in the way, and you're in the way, and they're in the way. And you become like hardened and cynical towards the needs of other people, towards other people's emotions, their feelings, their wants, their desires, their needs. And uh, so we become just hardened and cynical people, I think, in our world. I read recently this couple little stories about there was a reporter in California who did an experiment. Um, the experiment was real simple. You may have heard of it before. But he had this man, like, lie down in a gutter. And this guy didn't look like he was homeless. Had this guy lie in a gutter and just wait to see what happened. And on this really, really busy street of, of pedestrians, no one, not one person over the course of several hours stops to help this guy. Right? Other examples of that, in the city of Detroit, there were a couple of teenagers who discovered a woman in a telephone booth who had suffered a heart attack. They bring her to a nearby house, and they ring the doorbell asking for help. And the person on the inside says, get off my porch and take her with you. I just picture, like, the, the line from the old Clint Eastwood movie. He's like, get off my lawn, you know. And they're like, get out of my house with this woman who just had a heart attack. Another story, there was a doctor in Kentucky. Um, that's the first problem right there, Kentucky. Like, who's ever been to Kentucky? I don't know. I've never been there before. He's driving down the highway uh, to visit this patient when he saw an accident take place. He stops and he gives aid to the injured person in the accident, then carries on about his day. And the person sues him. The person in the accident sues the doctor for giving him aid. Right? So there's like examples that we know about of people just, we become so hardened and cynical towards other people, I think, in our culture and it's very common, and also it happens in the church. I think in the church we see this kind of attitude towards one another sometimes. But I want to contrast that with what you're going to see in this passage. Because you will not see that kind of attitude in the passage that we look at today in Philippians chapter 2. Um, my hope this morning is that this passage paints a picture for you of what the church should look like. So turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses, uh, we'll start in verse 19 here in a minute. I want to warn you that this passage is not flashy. Nothing flashy about this section of Scripture. You know, with Paul, usually with Paul, there's, um, there's some crazy action, like in the book of Acts. If you want to see crazy stories that involve Paul, go to the book of Acts and read that book. And every story that you see is like a, a crazy, miraculous example or something amazing happening. If you want to be... Um, Look at something super deep. Look at most of what Paul writes. Even, the, even Peter in the Bible says that Paul, no one can understand Paul. Even the Bible says that Paul's hard to understand. So um, usually with Paul, it's something like really cool story or it's something super deep. But in this section, it's just rather ordinary. But I want you to pay attention to a couple things. I want you to pay attention to how much care and concern and passion that these people seem to have for each other as we read through this text. I want you to pay attention to those, those kinds of words we look at these, at these uh, verses. Look at verse 19, chapter 2. 
I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. As you walk through this text, I want you to keep in mind just the deep love and affection and the care, concern that you see among everybody in this passage. And the question is, do we see this in the church today? And if not, why not? Our theme in this book has been gospel-centered friendship. And the first week of this semester, before we started the book of Philippians, um, we did a talk, a standalone talk, called Friendship Revisited. And I want to cover just some review of that real quick. There was this guy that I read recently. He has a fun, I can't pronounce his name. I'm not going to try. Um, anybody here know French? I can't speak French. Uh, but this guy, he says this. Christian friendship is extending the fellowship of Christ to one another. And so we told you to look at your friendships and ask this question. Is this what my friendships are about? Are they about extending the fellowship of Christ to someone else? Do our friendships have this kind of divine purpose? And we looked at three different kinds of friendship. We looked at what he calls fleshly friendship was the first one. And this is focused on shared likes and dislikes. They easily come and go. This would be someone where you, you've got some things in common. It's not always like bad things in common, but it could be something that's just, it's just there. And, but you like the same things, you dislike the same things, similar sense of humor, but those kind of friendships just sort of come and go. They don't tend to last um, and stand the test of time. This kind of friendship is just about just feeding the appetite. I like to do this, you like to do that, let's just get together and do that together. That's what those friendships are about. The second one was worldly friendship. This is focused on using people for our advantage. And it ends when either person stops being advantageous to the other. I think we've all experienced this. Maybe on the um, receiving end or the giving end of that, where someone, um, you see someone and they have something that you want. Popularity, a certain friend group. Um, there's something about them that everyone is just drawn to them, and you want what they have. And so you align yourself with them, you work your way in, or they work their way into your life, and you're just using each other for your own selfish gain. This kind of friendship never lasts. 
And then the third kind, spiritual friendship. This is focused on growing each other towards Christ-likeness. This kind of friendship doesn't end when things get tough. This kind of friendship is about something deeper than what we normally enter friendship with. I've always told you, I love when, when I see two people without much in common. I love whenever I see um, friendships take place in this room. Two people that don't have much in common outside of Christ, and they become really, really deep friends. I love seeing that because to me it's a testimony to the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ uh, in their lives. And I love when I see weird friendships. I love it because it's a powerful testimony. So friendship should be about this, this deep love and affection between people in the body of Christ. And we see this all throughout this passage, language that points to that. In verse 19, uh, we know Paul's in prison, and he wants to send Timothy back. He also wants to send Timothy back to these, um, the Philippians so, that, so he can hear how they're doing. And look what he says in reference to this guy, Timothy. He says that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. So just remember, I know it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but there was no, no communication apart from someone walking and then hearing and then walking back and telling. There was no way to get word back and forth except for that method. And Paul has no idea what these Philippians, where they're at spiritually. He planted the church there. He has no clue how Lydia is doing, how the jailer is doing, how the demon-possessed slave girl, how she's doing. And he wants to hear how these people are carrying on their faith. And he can't wait to hear a report on how they're doing. And then look at verse 20 again. I got like a different version for this next. I wanted to have you hear this one word. For I have no one else, he's, he's saying this in reference to Timothy, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. This idea, kindred spirit. This means one-souled or equal-souled. Many of you have friends that you, you would say about that person, you may not use the word kindred spirit, no one talks like that anymore, but you might say, we just have this connection. We have this, this whatever it is, we just know we have this connection. And what Paul's talking about is me and Timothy have this kindred spirit, this we're one-souled, equal-souled, and that's about one thing. It's about the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. So this, this friendship with Timothy is based on this one thing, and God has just knit their hearts together as brothers in Christ because of the gospel. So who are those people for you? Who are the people in your life that you would say, I, have, I am one-souled, I am equal-souled with these people? We all know that many of you have acquaintances. Many of you people have people that you would say, that's my, that's my closest friend, or these three, these three are my closest friends. But who is someone that you would, you would say, you are equal-souled? Your friendship is a spiritual friendship, and it's about the gospel. And you can say the words that Paul says about Timothy here in this passage. I think it's a good time to remind you that gospel-centered friendship requires that we must first live gospel-centered lives. 
So you can't just go around and be like, yeah, yeah, I need to find some friends like that. Like, who can I be friends with in that kind of way? It's like, if you're not, if that's not a priority for you, if you don't, if you're not living a gospel-centered life, then how can you have a gospel-centered friendship with someone? That's impossible. So Timothy is a close friend to Paul, and he says he has no one like him. He says, if I send Timothy to you, I can think of no better person than Timothy to be sent to you, the Philippians, because he will have genuine concern for you, much in the way that I do. What makes Timothy different? Remember those people back in chapter 1 that we talked about that were all about themselves? They did ministry. They were doing some good things, but it was all out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And Paul is saying, Timothy is the opposite of that. Timothy's different. And I think the greatest danger in ministry is what Paul talked about in chapter 1. People who do ministry or do what looks like on the outside godly things, but do it for their own selfish ambition. Trust me, it was one of the reasons why I was really scared to go into full-time ministry. Because I saw it growing up. I saw some of the worst people leading the church, the church that I grew up in. People that I questioned their faith. I questioned, are you even a believer? With some of the evil that I saw in the church growing up, I questioned their faith. Because some people get into the ministry game because they want to promote themselves. And sometimes it happens to some of the best people. Like they might get into ministry and have this great passion and great zeal for God, and then their own flesh and and Satan gets to them, and next thing you know, it's all about them, their selfish gain, self-promotion. And I'll admit to you, I'm 41 now, and I've experienced it myself. I've experienced the temptation towards those kinds of things. And but for the grace of God, I hope that um, that somehow God keeps me in the place I need to be in when it comes to ministry. Because I do not want to become what I hated as a kid. So ministry can be this it's very tempting thing. Because on the outside, it looks great. And you can keep up the perception of goodness for a long time and this self-promotion. You know, whenever, whenever a non-believing, like whenever a non-Christian like athlete or musician is about self-promotion, none of us really think, we're like, yeah, that's what you do. Like that's, that's how you make your brand. That's how you create an identity. That's how you get bigger deals or whatever it is. And so they're doing it on purpose in those realms but when it happens in ministry, it can be so deceptive and so subtle. And it can appear like, look at all the good this person's doing, and yet deep down there's all this self-glory and selfish ambition and vain conceit. And Paul is contrasting Timothy and saying, Timothy is not like the people I mentioned before. He's the opposite. He cares about you. He's genuinely concerned for you. And so this man's different. And when you know someone like that, as I describe that kind of person, 
I'm sure someone pops into your mind as like, yes, I know, I know someone like that. And when you know someone like that, someone, someone who has genuine concern for other people, that's a refreshing thing. That's a refreshing kind of person to know. Like, you don't, you don't doubt their motives. You don't question what they're doing and why they're doing it. And listen, none of us are perfect. Everyone struggles with that to some extent. But for the most part, this guy Timothy, he's genuinely concerned for the well-being of believers that he doesn't even yet know. He's concerned for these people. And so what are some ways that you're tempted to be like that? That you're tempted to prop yourself up in certain ministry contexts or make it all about you? What are some ways that we're tempted towards that? Look down at verse 22. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. What are the words that Paul uses to describe his relationship to Timothy? Well, he uses this father-son picture. So the, I imagine that, that Timothy is younger than Paul. And, you know, it's weird in my context because um, I was a youth intern for a long time at a church and I became a youth pastor and early, in the early days, people would say, you know, yeah, Dave, you're like a big brother to me. And I'm like, okay, cool. And now I might hear, like, you're like a father. And I'm going, wait, what? That's kind of weird. Stop. Don't say that. That's weird. But I've heard that before, and, and, and it's, it's endearing and it's encouraging. But Paul uses the same expression. He says, he says, Timothy's like a son to me, and I'm like a father to Timothy. And we see family language all over the New Testament, don't we? We see these words being used. And so I want you to understand the church isn't just like family. The church is family. If you take the words that God uses literally, the church isn't just like family. Or just, yeah, if we can think of it now, let's think of a picture. It's kind of like family. No, it is family. It is family. It's why you see words like, brothers and sisters and father and son and mother and daughter used in a spiritual sense in the body of Christ. And I know that the church can be a disappointing place. It usually is. We've all been let down by the body of Christ. But just imagine for a minute, I want to paint a picture for you. What if the church really became this? What if it really became family? What if it really became, what if you really saw the deep care and concern happen in here that Paul is talking about in this section of Scripture? This is the kind of relationship. So these family-type father-son, mother-daughter, brothers, sisters, it's the kind of, it's what we're hoping for, hoping to create in here and on Wednesdays and in G groups on Sunday nights. Every week, my leaders come in here. Um, many have done this for many, many years. And they're coming in here with intention and purpose. And we want, I, what I love to see happen, I want there to be leaders in this room that you look at and say, that's like a father to me. That's like a mother to me. That's like an older sister to me. That's like an older brother to me. These are the kinds of relationships that should be happening in this room. It is family. It's not just like family. It is family. 
and sort of hoping for that to happen in our context. Look at verse 25. Paul says, now he's talking about Epaphroditus. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus came all the way from Philippi to Rome, and he brings this gift for Paul. And again, he either got sick on the way or he got sick while he was in Rome. And listen, he knew that he probably would, that he might. He knew he might get robbed with the money. He knew that 1,600 miles is a long way to go, and yet he still chose to go because he cared that deeply for Paul, and the Philippians cared that deeply for Paul as well. But look at the words that Paul used to describe. We see the word brother used again. That's family language again. Epaphroditus was a Gentile. That means he wasn't a Jew. And Paul is like a diehard Jew before he became a Christian. And look how far Epaphroditus, this Gentile, goes to help Paul. And I told you before, I love when friendships should always look strange in the body of Christ. It should always look weird. Like, why is this non-Jew going that far to help this guy with a Jewish background? Why is he going that far to help Paul? Well, because of the gospel. Because they have Christ in common. Paul calls Epaphroditus his fellow worker. We've told you before how um, whenever I see some of those strange friendships develop that I've talked about, it usually happens around mission. Like whenever you go serve somewhere together, whether it's impact, mission trip, a Pine Cove service trip, that's when it usually happens. When you see yourself on mission with someone else, it's not really like you, is when you begin to develop those bonds and you see community happen among people that wouldn't normally have it because living on mission together leads to community. He also calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier. Now, I'm not trying to sound overly dramatic here. But there is a reality that in the body of Christ, we are at war together. We really are at war together. And I don't mean that to sound, it's us versus them. It's us versus the culture in the way that some might pitch that. It's not the kind of war I'm talking about. But we are at war together. And it's right to call someone a fellow soldier who's walking along with you in the body of Christ. I know whenever we think of the church, especially for the young men in this room, when you think of the church, it's easy to think of the church and following Christ as some, like, wimpy endeavor. That's for women. It's for weaklings. And it's easy to think of coming to a Bible study or coming to a Wednesday night thing or coming to a Sunday morning thing and think, you know what, that's... That's not for me. I want to be a man, like a real man. I don't want to be one of those guys who's like a weakling, who needs Jesus, who needs to pray. And it's easy for us to think of church, especially if you're a young man and you're not yet a believer. It's easy for us to think of church and the whole community thing and and all that as that kind of thing. But I want to remind you that Paul chose his words very carefully 
and I'm not trying to sound overly dramatic and make it sound like, you know, yeah, we're, we're at war, and I'm, I'm not trying to repaint the picture of you of church and, and make it sound more manly so you'll come and be a part of it. I'm, I'm not doing that. But there's a reality in which is true that we are at war together, and we're fighting against sin, and we're fighting against the principalities and powers of this world. And so every time you get with people around tables and Wednesday night and you open up the word, this is doing battle. This is, you're engaging in warfare with your fellow soldiers. And it's a very important image for us to remember. And it's why community is so important. You need each other for this purpose. So in this passage, Paul holds up this guy Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he says, look at these two men. I want you to see how these two men, how they're doing it, how they're living humble lives. And I'm going to send them to you, and I want them to encourage you. And I can honestly say about our leadership team in this room that I think the same way about them. I, I think the same way about the people sitting at your tables, that in a sense, we send them to you each week, Wednesdays and Sundays, and we want to hold them up. And listen, no one, none of us, myself, none of them are perfect. We all have flaws. We all sin. But I want to put them in front of you each week, and, and I want you to, to look at them as examples in the same way that, that Paul wanted them to look at Timothy and Epaphroditus as an example One of the questions I think about whenever I'm, like, interviewing someone to come onto our team, I think about this question, and it's, do I want my students to imitate this person at their stage of life? So I'm talking to a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old or a 32-year-old. I think to myself, do I want my student to be living their life, how this person is living their life at that stage of life? If the answer to that question is yes, then that's a great person to bring on to our leadership team. That's a great person to bring on to our leadership team. And I know we've talked about this idea of church being family. And I've talked about our leaders assuming a role like father, son, mother, daughter, older sister, older brother. But, and I know in this room there are some of you that have difficult situations at home. You've got maybe uh, both parents, maybe not believers, and they're just, they don't understand what you're doing here. Or maybe one's a believer, one's not a believer. Maybe mom or dad are out of the picture. Maybe they claim to be believers, but things are just really harsh or difficult, and you can't figure out why. And this is why you need the body of Christ. The body of Christ should be family for you. And I know it always isn't, but it should. But it should be. And it's why you need the church to be a family for you. So when we hear Paul's words in this, again, it's not flashy. It's not theologically deep. There's no crazy action happening in the text. But I want you to just to... to, I want you to hear this morning, when you read about Timothy and Epaphroditus, 
one thing stands out. They had this deep burden and passion for the people that are involved in this passage. And the question is, do we share that same kind of burden for each other in the body of Christ? I want to play for you a, a video by Francis Chandler. He's describing a pastor friend of his that has this kind of passion that we should have. Go ahead and watch this video. My hero um, on this earth is a guy in, in India who's a pastor, who's a leader. He really humble guy. If he was sitting in here, you'd, you wouldn't even know. He might be. Um, he's led about three million people to the Lord through his ministry. He plants, on average, 17 churches a day. And you're just kind of like, how is that possible? He, he's got over 50 colleges. And these are not like casual believers that prayed a prayer and said, I want Jesus to be my friend. These are people who literally, literally dig their graves sometimes before walking into a city to evangelize. Okay, there, there's some serious, serious following of Christ going on on this earth. We may not see it in some of our context. I'm just saying it's going on. But this guy is one of my heroes because he's just so simple, so humble, just so connected to the Lord. And he called me a couple months ago and he was crying. He's crying on the phone to me. And, and it was over another pastor in the U.S. of a big church had another moral failure. And, and the, you know, it's just it, he was crying. And I'm going, well, why is this guy crying? This happens every day. But he's weeping over it. I, I, it was not in any judgment or anything. He goes, I just don't get it. He goes, I talk to the pastors in your country. I talk to them. And, and it just seems like they don't really know Jesus. Like I walk away going, I, I, Lord, I wish he knew you. I wish he really knew you, Jesus. He goes, when they, when they talk, he goes, they, talk, they know a lot about him. And they can tell me all these things about him, but it, it just feels like they talk, they, they talk about him like, like an outsider, like an outsider looking in and observing him, rather having just been with him. And again, this was not in a judgmental attitude at all. It was in tears. He, and he made the statement. He goes, I feel like the people in your country are happy to hear from Moses when they can actually walk up the mountain themselves and meet with Almighty God, but they're not interested. They just want to hear from Moses. They want to hear from you, Francis. They want to take a selfie with Moses. Don't they realize they can come before the burning bush? Don't they realize they can walk up the mountain and it's just them and God? And don't they want to be connected to Him directly and know Him? And He's just crying. And I'm just listening to these words and going, wow. I think He's nailed it. So do we feel this kind of deep passion for people that we don't even know in the way that you see in this text this morning? Do we sense that among ourselves? Do we have that kind of deep passion and concern for each other, the way he's describing here? And the question is, if not, why not? This is the heart of Jesus, and this should be our heart as well. Go into your discussion at your tables.